0: 5. From Breaking Silence to Community Control. Community-controlled databases, murder investigations, and ceremony to find missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Audrey Huntley. My work supporting the families of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, trans and two-spirit people, MEG2S, to organize around the violent disappearances of their loved ones began in 1999. I had moved back to Turtle Island from Germany and found myself living in Vancouver's downtown Eastside when I first learned about the memorial march to honor indigenous women who had died violent, premature deaths in the neighborhood. All of the recognition of MEV2S by the mainstream media and government that has happened in the last few years goes back to the grannies and aunties of this Vancouver community who began holding ceremony on February 14, 1991. They have been demanding justice every year since and the marches and ceremonies have spread across the country, today taking place in over 20 cities across Canada, all focused on showing love for those who are gone and care for those left behind. In Toronto we gather at police headquarters to underline the complicity of the state and the impunity accorded to those who disappear move 2S. We don't ask for permission to be there, but assert our sovereignty as indigenous peoples living in the dish with one spoon covenant and adhering to traditional laws of governance to gather wherever we want to on our lands. Attendance at this beautiful gathering, where we share strawberries and water in the dead of winter with temperatures often hovering around minus 30 degrees, has grown over the years. When we started, we were 100 to 150 people, but in recent years we have grown close to a thousand. Public mourning is a powerful act that flies in the face of the societal indifference that has surrounded MUG 2S for too long. The power of these marches and ceremonies lies in the reclamation and practice of public ceremony and grief breaking through the shroud of silence surrounding these murders. In Toronto, Wanda Whitebird, a long-standing elder and community organizer in prison justice and indigenous community, has conducted the prayer since the strawberry ceremony was shared with us by Darlene Ritchie, an Oneida woman, 14 years ago. The love for community expressed in the drums, songs, and sharing of medicine resonates with all who enter the space and reverberates far beyond it. As Wanda says every year, We have a commitment to our sisters on the other side to show up every February 14th, whether there are 15 or 1500 of us. We will never stop, and they will always be there waiting to join us. This year, 2019, marks our 14th ceremony and the 16th year that No More Silence has been engaging with the Toronto community, documenting the violent deaths and disappearances of MEB 2S and working to build the strength of Indigenous women and trans and two spirit community members to resist violence. Since 2013, we have researched the disappearances of 200 women and two spirit community members in Ontario and created a community led database documenting the lives and deaths of me in Ontario. We released our final report on the research we've conducted for this database at our latest February 14th feast. The research was initiated in collaboration with families of Sisters in Spirit and the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. We can keep track of our missing and murdered women, girls, and two-spirit people better than the state, which has an interest in keeping the numbers low. More importantly, we want to honor their memory. We want the information to be controlled by the community and accessible to the community and for the community, not locked away in a government database. When we began doing this work, we didn't have a good grasp on how many deaths and disappearances had happened. There hadn't been any comprehensive research done on how many missing and murdered indigenous women there actually were in Canada until Amnesty International's Stolen Sisters report in 2006 raised awareness about this issue in the mainstream media. Beverly Jacobs, Mohawk, president of Native Women's Association of Canada, NWAC, at the time and a fierce advocate for indigenous women, co-authored the report and contributed enormously in supporting family members through the Sisters in Spirit program. MWC was able to do research for a number of years and documented 580 cases of MEV-2S. However, The Conservative federal government cut NWICS funding in 2010, and the data was handed over to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, the Federal Police Force of Canada, along with $10 million to create a centralized missing person project, which didn't even focus on women, never mind indigenous women. We didn't need to demonstrate more cases in order to take this issue seriously, but we did know that mainstream society needed to be confronted with hard facts in order to get journalists to cover these stories pressure governments to act, and raise awareness overall. And we wanted to know, we think that it is part of a community's responsibility to keep track of their own. What distinguished us for a long time and still distinguishes us from other people who do this work was the understanding of settler colonialism as the inherent root of the violence. Our definition of who to include in our research has broadened over the years. For example, we've often been asked to include people's loved ones who committed suicide, such as a young girl, Jewel, Jamie Jameson's daughter, who hung herself after being bullied for several weeks. In her mother's view, she was killed by the bullying. We started thinking about it as death by colonialism. We understand that there can be no solution outside of completely dismantling the settler colonial state. For a very long time, we were very isolated within Toronto's native community because of these stances. A lot of the native community agencies are government-funded and did not want to be associated with those types of politics for fear of losing their funding. We also included in our work voices that have sometimes been marginalized within native communities, such as members of the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, a group of young women and two-spirit people doing national organizing around indigenous sexual and reproductive justice, and members of NAMI REES, Native Men's Residence, the local indigenous men's shelter. We centered those who are most vulnerable and experience the highest levels of violence, trans and two spirit people and sex workers. Maggie's, a sex work advocacy group, has been part of our organizing committee for several years, and we're proud to have a two spirit women's big drum at our feast. This has caused some in the community to stay away, and we're okay with that. We understand that settler colonialism operates in a cis sexist and heteropatriarchal framework, and we need to tear that down, too. I have also had the opportunity to take the issue of meB 2s to the mainstream when I was employed by CBC television. I was fortunate to get approval for a cross Canada research trip called the Traces of Missing Women Project in 2004. I set out from Toronto in the summer traveling west with the aim to gather the memories of loved ones who had been disappeared. I was more than a little anxious about wearing the hat of a CBC reporter and how that might make it more difficult to get folks to go on camera and talk to me. At that point, Mainstream media either ignored violence against indigenous people, or their depiction of the violence was riddled with racist stereotypes, with headlines like missing prostitutes body found in parking lot. However, there was a lot of attention paid to the horrific serial killings that had occurred over the span of many years at a pig farm close to Vancouver. The 2002 arrest of one man, Arpicton, for the murders dominated headlines and framed the killings of dozens of women, of whom 60 percent were indigenous, as the work of a madman, an aberration. His victims, who had been taken from the downtown east side, were poor, involved in street economies such as sex work, and struggled with addictions. Were not accorded any humanizing details of their lives. I wanted to provide a different point of view. I set out on my road trip with my camera gear and wolf dog in a little Ford Fiesta, with pink posters that I hung up in the communities where I stopped, and an 800 number where people could call me. I had promised myself that I would let families come to me and not breach anyone's privacy or ability to grieve by making cold calls. To my surprise, I was inundated with requests to share about community members missing and murdered loved ones on my way. Not a single community was unaffected. I believe the trust and desire to share with me came about because I used medicines and ceremony and followed the spiritual guidance of my elder, Wanda Whitebird, and her teachings. Before I left... We had a sweat and we blessed the tobacco ties for that journey, and then she instructed me every time you cross into a new territory, put your tobacco down, and the sisters on the other side will decide who comes to you and whether they want their stories told. I had been practicing ceremony for about four years at that point, and I'd had life changing experiences in the lodge. But when that was my instruction, I was a little nervous, quite frankly. Like, really? That's all you got for me? I was by myself and my dog, going off on this journey, and I had really no idea if anybody was going to talk to me. Having lived in the native community for some time in Vancouver and the downtown east side, I knew about people's animosity toward media and researchers, and I knew that it was justified because of the horribly exploitive experiences the community has had with them. But there were more people wanting me to come to them than I had geographical ability and time to speak with. I would be in northern British Columbia— and people on Vancouver Island would want me to come. I ended up interviewing over 45 family members of Mew2S in a period of 7 weeks covering 15,000 kilometers. I discovered there was a huge need for people to share their stories. They were already traumatized by the loss, and it was compounded by societal indifference to their stories and people's lack of interest and care. But I ended up getting only 3 minutes of airtime to share the footage from that trip. This was heartbreaking so I used the footage to make an independent film called The Heart Has Its Own Memory. I decided to shoot only people's hands holding the tobacco ties I gave them. This was partly because people in the downtown east side were sharing truths about the Hell's Angels' involvement in the pig farm murders and needed to protect their identity, but also because I wanted the viewer to visualize the women who were gone as their loved ones shared. Out of that experience... My boss recognized that me was a story that needed telling and gave me the resources to work on a feature-length investigative documentary. I chose to focus on Norma George, whose naked dead body was found in a parking lot outside Vancouver in 1993. I was close with her sister who lived in the downtown east side and believed it would be a healing experience for the family, and I really wanted to find out what had happened to her. This was the second time I experienced the incredible presence of spirit in doing this work. Both Norma and her brother Tom, who had been killed by the same people a few months before her, were with me every step of the way. They showed up in many ways and as crows, over and over again. I didn't even realize it until I was back in Toronto in the edit suite and saw that there were always crows in the footage. Once we got started, I discovered that investigating a murder isn't that hard. It just involves a lot of talking to as many people as you can. In the course of about a year, I got tons of information about Norma's life. I was able to find and get her Bible and give it to her mother after 14 years. She had this Bible that she made a lot of notes in throughout her young life that was really important to her. From talking to people, I found out that she used to stay in a rooming house in the downtown east side with a man, and he was still living there. He was reluctant to talk, I never did get him to open the door to his room, but I stood outside and we talked through the closed door, and after three visits he slid the Bible out. It also involved a six-pack of beer, but I never told my executive producer about that, I was able to give Norma's Bible back to her mother, and that was a beautiful thing. All kinds of things like that happened. If you just start talking to people, it's amazing how much stuff will come out and how suddenly you will unearth things. I put down a lot of tobacco during that year. I had also learned on the traces of missing women trip to feast the women on the other side, so I continued that practice. I made sure to give them water to drink. I hadn't done this on the research trip, and it was startling when at the sweat to close off the journey Wanda received a message that the women were thirsty and that I had neglected that piece, they weren't angry, but it did get pointed out and we poured a lot of water at that sweat. And now I remember to always include a drink. Everything we learned about Norma's life was really important to her family. They hadn't been able to complete their grieving ceremonies because they had received the body in a sealed coffin and were instructed by RCMP not to open it. People were in shock and followed those instructions, despite the fact that it was their tradition to do open casket wakes. Not having done this meant they couldn't move forward with their process to place a headstone on her grave as well as on her brothers. They kept those headstones in a closet in their home for over 15 years. As a result of the documentary airing on national television and some advocacy work I did with the RCMP, a team was sent to northern BC to meet with the family and a community elder. They showed them autopsy photos so that they could identify Norma and complete their process and place the headstones. That was a big deal for the entire community, which had been stuck in this grief, and it was very important for Norma's mom to complete that ritual. She got to do the headstone ceremony only a year before she herself passed into the spirit world people need to complete their ceremonies. I never knew about the power of ceremony until I put everything on the line at work. Norma's case had been cold for 13 years, and I didn't set out thinking we would find out what happened to her. But we were able to solve her murder and her brother Tom's. It was an off-camera interview with the coroner who worked on Norma that confirmed the suspicions we had been putting together. He had taken us to the place her body was dumped and mentioned the proximity of a certain clubhouse, it was one of our first shoot days, And I remember barely noticing that a dead crow lay where she had died. The coroner revealed information about the police investigation that confirmed who was responsible for her death. We had already pieced things together from the many conversations we'd had with her family and friends, and it all pointed in one direction. The family was both devastated and relieved to have some answers. The guilty parties were untouchable, however, and since going public would have endangered her surviving family and friends, we changed the nature of our documentary. Instead of presenting the results of the investigative work, we told the story of her sisters, who were estranged and whose lives had taken different turns, and how they were reunited after 13 years with a visit to Norma's grave in Takla Landing. Making this film about Norma, Go Home, Baby Girl, was an amazing experience and confirmed two things for me. First, all work around Noob 2S must be founded in ceremony and work with spirit, taking direction from the sisters on the other side. Second, Investigations are best conducted by those closest to the disappeared, loved ones or community, not the policing institutions of the settler colonial state. I have seen families achieve the impossible under horrific circumstances because they don't quit in their quest for justice. Take the members of Cheyenne Fox's family, who are suing the Toronto police. When 20-year-old Cheyenne fell from the 24th floor of a downtown condo, the police concluded her death was a suicide just a few hours after she died there was nothing to indicate that she had killed herself, and she had been in the presence of a man who was never held for questioning. Cheyenne was a loving mom of a beautiful toddler whom her family insists she would never have willingly left behind. The community was outraged at the police finding, and advocacy calls to investigators uncovered that there were two people in the apartment below who say they saw a woman dangling for five seconds or so. That didn't sound like someone jumping to their death at all. The family worked hard with the assistance of Aboriginal legal services to reverse the coroner's finding of suicide, which was a small victory. They continue to speak out against the police handling of their daughter's case and will be in court in 2019. While those close to victims, though not necessarily family, are best positioned to uncover the circumstances of their death and to solve their murders because they know them best, there is the dilemma of being overcome with shock and traumatic grief. It can be overwhelming for the individuals involved. Who become so paralyzed that it is difficult to take action. This was something even I have felt myself. I was in Toronto when the death of Bella Lebuc and M. C. Clean, the youngest sister of a friend I had been close to when I lived in Vancouver, occurred. Bella had just graduated from design school and was excited to be going to London, England, to intern. She was vibrant and creative and defied all the stereotypes of the at-risk victim. She too fell 31 floors to her death from a downtown condo. I couldn't believe it at first. I found it harder to respond and take the steps that needed taking. Wanda Whitebird and I visited our friend who was Bella's roommate, at her apartment, and the shock and grief were so palpable and huge. It breaks my heart looking back to admit that it effectively shut us down and immobilized us. There was so much more I wish no more silence had done to hold the police accountable for doing their jobs but it was all we could do to organize a spirit release ceremony at the site of her death to coincide with her body being returned to her community. People are in such shock by violent tragic loss that even monitoring whether the cops are doing their jobs feels almost impossible, never mind people doing the job themselves. So that can't be the solution. The family members can't be expected to take this on, they are too busy dealing with the concrete horror. Cheyenne Fox's family should not have to be speaking out against the police when the father is already dealing with the horrific task of picking up his daughter's body to bring her home from Toronto to the reserve, and when his sons have to be the ones to pick up her dead body off a gurney and drive her north in the back of their own pickup truck. That's absolutely horrible. Families need more people who are close to them, they need a community structure that can develop some skills and knows what steps to take. I spent 2016 working on a video resource to fill a bit of that gap. Not just another case, when your loved one has gone missing or been murdered, was made with community members for community members and is proving to be a useful tool in assisting those who need to navigate the nightmare of violent loss. I was able to interview families and advocates across the county, from Newfoundland, including Inu women from Labrador, to BC. Community members shared painful experiences navigating the disappearance of their loved ones with the aim of helping others going through this horror. The video is designed to assist with the search for someone who is missing and to help families navigate the worst-case scenario if those who are missing are found murdered. Folks share important information on how to find someone while respecting two-spirit people's pronouns and chosen names, best practices for dealing with police, and surviving a trial. One family's experience in investigating the murder of their loved one stands out. I met Kai K. Coheran, and Inkla Kapma, in Vancouver, and she shared about how they mobilized community in the interior of B.C. to find her cousin, Roxanne Louie, when the police were failing. This young woman explained that they were pounding on the RCMP's door every day, occupying the space to ensure they were doing their job. They also contacted everyone they knew in Roxanne's circles and encouraged them to share with police. The family encountered a typical racist response by police who thought that Roxanne was out partying, and this was also reported in the media. Kaikek stresses how important it is to stop reinforcing those stereotypes and talks about how even community members who had internalized this view took a step back from looking for her because of this. She notes, as do many others in the video, that when a loved one who is usually in contact with folks every day stops being in touch, something is wrong and action is required right away. The importance of public vigils to create media presence cannot be understated. Roxanne's family held a walk of faith and ceremony in the hopes that she would come back to them safely. They actually marched through the neighborhood of Roxanne's in-laws, who they suspected were involved in her disappearance. This applied pressure to those who had committed the crime to come forward. This incredible community effort led by her family led to a confession so that Roxanne's body was recovered and her killers were tried and convicted of murder, a rare outcome. This would never have happened were it not for the strength and conviction of her family and the community support they rallied around them. The last segment of the video presents community responses that support healing. I had the privilege of attending the Mikawa Pekwani Memorial Storytelling and Youth Leadership Camp in Little Buffalo, which Bella Lubook and MC Lean's family started in her honor. Community members spent four days on the land practicing traditional activities, leading up to a traditional round dance and ceremony for the family. Kids participate in media workshops, moose hide tanning, fish scaling, beating, drum making, and stick games. Grief recovery practitioners and healers are available for the families, and an honor dance closes off the ceremony. Bella's sister, Melina Laboukin, states that reconnecting with land and culture is part of the healing and restoration that families and communities need to go through. I wholeheartedly agree. I chose the wise words of Alex Wilson, two-spirit advocate, to end the video on this powerful note, there's an energy or spirit that exists in indigenous people that is intimately connected to the land that we're on, there is hope in dismantling the system. I think it is absolutely possible, and I think that a community based response is the way that is going to do that. All my relations. 6. What to do when you've been abusive. Annotated edition. Kai Cheng Tom. As I sit in my bed and begin to type, beds are my favorite typing places, there is a part of me that says, don't write this article. There is a part of me that still resonates deeply with the fear and shame that surround the topics of abuse and intimate partner violence, the taboo that most communities have around talking not just about the fact that people experience rape and abuse, but that people we know and care about might be rapists and abusers. Perhaps most secret and shameful of all is the fear that we, ourselves, are or have been abusive, the fear that we could be those villains, those monsters in the night. Nobody wants to be an abuser. No one wants to admit that they have hurt someone, especially when so many of us have been hurt ourselves. But the truth is that abusers and survivors of abuse do not exist, and have never existed, in a dichotomy, sometimes, hurt people hurt people. In this rape culture we live in, sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference between the hurt you are experiencing and the hurt you are causing someone else. In the years since this essay was originally published, we have seen, as a result of the MeToo movement, an enormous shift in the intensity and frequency with which intimate partner violence and abuse is discussed in public. While this movement has brought about positive change and exposed many abusive people in power, it has also highlighted the complexity and epidemic nature of abuse. It has shown us, irrefutably, that survivors can also abuse. It has shown us that we cannot think of abusers as incomprehensible monsters who must be exterminated, because abusers are also our heroes, lovers, friends, family. It has shown us that, more urgently than ever, we must find new ways of responding to and healing from violence. Seven years ago, when I first started training as a support worker for survivors of intimate partner violence, I was sitting in a training workshop when someone asked what our organization's policy was on taking requests for support from people who were abusing their partners and wanted help stopping. The answer was brusque and immediate we don't work with abusers. Period. Fair enough, I thought. After all, an organization created to support survivors of rape and abuse should center survivors, not the people who hurt them. The only problem was, I wondered, what happens when people are both survivors and abusers? And if we don't work with abusers, who does? Note, I am not, in this article, talking about whether or not a relationship can be mutually abusive. This is a conversation for another time. Rather, I am suggesting that people who are survivors in one relationship are capable of being abusive in previous or later relationships. The question of whether a relationship can be mutually abusive is probably an important one to address for the practical reason that many violent relationships break down into a debate over which person is the abuser and which is the survivor. Sometimes, the distinction is very easy to make because one person clearly has more power than the other. Often, however, things are more complex, for example, when both people in a relationship experience high levels of social oppression or marginalization. While I do not have a clear answer to this question, I do wonder if it is more important to focus on identifying and ending violent patterns of behavior than on assigning blame. If a loved one hurts me, for example, I may be justified in defending myself. I can still take responsibility, however, if my defensive actions result in disproportionate amounts of harm, which doesn't prevent my loved one from taking responsibility in their own turn. Seven years later, as a therapist who has worked with many individuals who are recovering or former abusers, I am still looking for the answers to those questions. There are extremely few resources and organizations out there with the mandate, will, or knowledge to help people stop being abusive. But doesn't the feminist saying go, we shouldn't be teaching people how not to get raped, we should be teaching people not to rape? And, if so, doesn't it follow that we shouldn't only support people who have survived abuse but should also support people in learning how not to abuse? When we are able to admit that the capacity to harm lies within ourselves, within us all, we become capable of radically transforming the conversation around abuse and rape culture. We can go from simply reacting to abuse and punishing abusers to preventing abuse and healing our communities. Because the revolution starts at home, as they say. The revolution starts in your house, in your own relationships, in your bedroom. The revolution starts in your heart. The following is a nine step guide to confronting the abuser in you, in me, in us all. 1. Listen to the survivor. Listen to the survivor may seem to imply that there can only be one survivor in a given situation, or that the first person who calls out the other has to be the survivor of an abuse dynamic. This is not necessarily true. Today, I might give this section the title Learn to Listen When Someone Says You Have Hurt Them. When one has been abusive, the very first, and one of the most difficult, skills of holding oneself accountable is learning to simply listen to the person or people whom one has harmed. Listening without becoming defensive. Listening without trying to equivocate or make excuses. Listening without minimizing or denying the extent of the harm. Listening without trying to make oneself the center of the story being told. When someone, particularly a partner or loved one, tells you that you have hurt or abused them, it can be easy to understand this as an accusation or attack. Very often, this is our first assumption, that we are being attacked. This is why so many perpetrators of abuse respond to survivors who confront them by saying something along the lines of, I'm not abusing you. You are abusing me, right now, with this accusation. But this is the cycle of violence talking. This is the script that rape culture has built for us, a script in which there must be a hero and a villain, a right and a wrong, an accuser and an accused. What if we understood being confronted about perpetuating abuse as an act of courage, even a gift, on the part of the survivor? What if, instead of reacting immediately in our own defense, we instead took the time to listen, to really try to understand the harm we might have done to another person? When we think of accountability in terms of listening and love instead of accusation and punishment, everything changes. Listening without becoming defensive does not necessarily mean relinquishing one's own truth. We must be able to make room for varying perspectives and multiple emotional truths in our hearts. 2. Take Responsibility for the Abuse After listening, the next step in holding oneself accountable is taking responsibility for the abuse. This means, simply enough, agreeing that you and only you are the source of physical, emotional, or psychological violence you have directed toward another person. Remember, however, that you are not responsible for the violence that someone else has done to that person, or for harm that they have done to themselves. Taking responsibility means learning boundaries, which means accepting the weight of your own actions, no more and no less. It is not helpful to overstate the amount of harm you have done to another person, nor to collapse into a puddle of martyrdom. Taking responsibility means engaging critically with your actions, not delegating all of the thinking to somebody else. A simple analogy for taking responsibility for abuse is taking responsibility for stepping on someone else's foot. There are many reasons why you might do such a thing. You were in a hurry, you weren't looking where you were going, or maybe no one ever taught you that it was wrong to step on other people's feet. But you still did it. No one else, only you are responsible, and it is up to you to acknowledge and apologize for it. The same holds true for abuse no one, and I really mean no one, not your partner. Not patriarchy, not mental illness, not society, not the devil, is responsible for the violence that you do to another person. A lot of factors can contribute to or influence one's reasons for committing abuse, see the point below, but in the end, only I am responsible for my actions, as you are for yours. 3. Accept that your reasons are not excuses. There is an awful, pervasive myth out there that people who abuse others do so simply because they are bad people. Because they are sadistic, or because they enjoy other people's pain. This is, I think, part of the reason why so many people who have been abusive in the past or present resist the use of the terms abuse or abuser to describe their behavior. In fact, very, very, very few people who abuse are motivated to do so by sadism. In my experience as a therapist and community support worker, when people are abusive, it's usually because they have a reason based in desperation or suffering. Some reasons for abusive behavior I have heard include. I am isolated and alone, and the only person who keeps me alive is my partner. This is why I can't let my partner leave me. My partner hurts me all the time. I was just hurting them back. I am sick, and if I don't force people to take care of me, then I will be left to die. I am suffering, and the only way to relieve the pain is to hurt myself or others. I didn't know that what I was doing was abuse. People always did the same to me. I was just following the script. No one will love me unless I make them. All of these are powerful, real reasons for abuse, but they are never excuses. There is no reason good enough to excuse abusive behavior. Reasons help us understand abuse, but they do not excuse it. Accepting this is essential to transforming culpability into accountability and turning justice into healing. 4. Don't play the Survivor Olympics. As I mentioned above, communities tend to operate on a survivor-abuser or victim-perpetrator dichotomy model of abuse. This is the belief that people who have survived abuse in one relationship can never be abusive in other relationships. I find that social justice or leftist communities also tend to misapply social analysis to individual situations of abuse, suggesting that individuals who belong to oppressed or marginalized groups can never abuse individuals who belong to privileged groups, that is, that women can never abuse men, racialized people can never abuse white people, and so on. But neither of the above ideas is true. Survivors of abuse in one relationship can, in fact, be abusive in other relationships. And it's easier for privileged individuals to abuse others because of the extra power social privilege gives them, but anyone is capable of abusing anyone given the right, or rather, wrong, circumstances. It can be easy, When confronted with the abuse we have perpetrated, to play Survivor Olympics. I can't be abusive, we may want to argue, I'm a survivor. Or the abuse I have survived is so much worse than what you're accusing me of. Or nothing I do is abusive to you because you have more privilege than me. But survivors can be abusers, too. Anyone can be abusive, and comparing or trivializing doesn't absolve us of responsibility for it. 5. Take the survivor's lead. When having a dialogue with someone who has been abused, it's essential to give the survivor the space to take the lead in expressing their needs and setting boundaries. You should also take time to think about your own needs and boundaries without making the person you have harmed take care of you. This is why having support in the community is crucial. If basic needs are going unmet, no one can heal from abuse, nor can anyone truly be accountable. If you have abused someone, it's not up to you to decide how the process of healing or accountability should work. This doesn't mean that you don't get to have rights or boundaries, or that you can't contribute actively to the process. It means that you don't get to say that the person you have heard is crazy or that what they are expressing doesn't matter. Instead, it might be a good idea to try asking the person who has confronted you questions like these, what do you need right now? Is there anything I can do to make this feel better? How much contact would you like to have with me going forward? If we share a community, how should I navigate situations where we might end up in the same place? How does this conversation feel for you, right now? At the same time, it's important to understand that the needs of survivors of abuse can change over time, and that survivors may not always know right away, or ever, what their needs are. Being accountable and responsible for abuse means being patient, flexible, and reflective about the process of having dialogue with the survivor. Having been witness to many community accountability processes that have seemed to create more harm for those involved, I must emphasize that survivor-led does not mean that those who identify as survivors are necessarily experts in transformative justice, nor that the identified survivor in a dynamic of abuse should get to dictate what happens to the identified abuser. Survivors, understandably, may wish to get revenge on abusers and so may ask for violence to be done in the name of justice, also. Abusers may wish to get revenge on survivors who name them and may try to manipulate the situation by making counterclaims of abuse. I have seen calls for abusers to be beaten up or put in life threatening situations. This is a replication of the criminal justice system, which prioritizes retribution over recovery from violence. Criminal justice is interested in assigning blame and executing punishment, while transformative justice challenges the notion that punishment is inherent to justice. I feel strongly that as long as punishment remains at the center of our thinking around accountability and justice, survivor-led processes are doomed to fall into the trap of individuals desperately trying to avoid accountability out of fear. Survivor-led, to me, means that survivors get to lead their own process of recovery, that survivors are given space to tell their stories and speak their needs, which criminal justice usually does not allow. It does not mean that people who may have been deeply wounded are suddenly handed full responsibility for a community dialogue and rehabilitation process. Survivor-led does not mean that the community gets to abdicate its responsibility for providing support, safety, expertise, and leadership in making healing happen. 6. Face the fear of accountability. Being accountable for abuse takes a lot of courage. We live in a culture that demonizes and oversimplifies abuse probably because we don't want to accept the reality that abuse is actually commonplace and can be perpetrated by anybody. A lot of people paint themselves into corners denying abuse because, to be quite honest, it's terrifying to face the consequences, real and imagined, of taking responsibility. And there are real risks, people have lost friends, communities, jobs, and resources over abuse. The risks are especially high for marginalized individuals, I am thinking particularly of black and brown folks here, who are likely to face harsh, discriminatory sentencing and legal processes. If we are ever to see the dream of transformative justice become a widespread reality, we must collectively resist the culture of disposability that says that people who have done harm are no longer people, that they are trash, that they must be cancelled. While consequences for harmful behavior are a necessary outcome of accountability, those consequences should not include actions that are themselves abusive. If you have placed your trust in the community by allowing it to make a decision about how you should take accountability, that trust is a sacred responsibility. The leaders of a process of justice are responsible for not abusing their power, just as you are responsible for not abusing yours. I can only suggest that when it comes to ending abuse, it's easier to face our fear than live in it all of our lives. It's more healing to tell the truth than to hide inside a lie. When we hold ourselves accountable, we prove that the myth of the monster abuser is a lie. 7. Separate shame from guilt. Shame and social stigma are powerful emotional forces that can prevent us from holding ourselves accountable for being abusive. We don't want to admit to being that person, so we don't admit to having been abusive at all. Some people might suggest that people who have been abusive ought to feel shame, after all, perpetrating abuse is wrong. I would argue, though, that this is where the difference between guilt and shame is key. Guilt is feeling bad about something you've done, shame is feeling bad about who you are. People who have been abusive should feel guilty for the specific acts of abuse they are responsible for. They should not feel shame about who they are because this means that abuse has become a part of their identity. It means that they believe that they are fundamentally a bad person, in other words, an abuser. But if you believe that you are an abuser, a bad person who hurts others, Then you have already lost the struggle for change, because we cannot change who we are. If you believe that you are a fundamentally good person who has done hurtful or abusive things, then you open the possibility for change. 8. Don't expect anyone to forgive you. Being accountable is not about earning forgiveness. That is to say, it doesn't matter how accountable you are, nobody has to forgive you for being abusive, least of all the person you have abused. In fact, Using the process of doing accountability to manipulate or coerce someone into giving their forgiveness to you is an extension of the abuse dynamic. It centers the abuser, not the survivor. One shouldn't aim for forgiveness when holding oneself accountable. Rather, self-accountability is about learning how we have harmed others, why we have harmed others, and how we can stop. But. 9. Forgive yourself. You do have to forgive yourself. Because you can't stop hurting other people until you stop hurting yourself. When one is abusive, when one is hurting so much on the inside that it feels like the only way to make it stop is to hurt other people, it can be terrifying to face the hard truth of words like abuse and accountability. One might rather blame others, blame society, blame the people we love, instead of ourselves. This is true, I think, of community as well as individuals. It is so much easier, so much simpler to create hard lines between good and bad people, to create walls to shut the shadowy archetype of the abuser out instead of mirrors to look at the abuser within. Perhaps this is why self-accountability tools like this list are so rare. It takes courage to be accountable. To decide to heal. But when we do decide, we discover incredible new possibilities. There is good and bad in everyone. Anyone can heal, given the right circumstances, and everyone can heal, given the same. You are capable of loving and being loved. Always. 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 Nine. Nine authors note, this article was originally published under the title Nine Ways to be Accountable When You've been Abusive on the website Everyday Feminism on February 1, 2016. In the years since, a number of personal experiences and community events have caused me to rethink some aspects of the piece. While I stand behind its primary assertions, it feels important to me to address certain issues of nuance and practical application. On receiving the invitation to republish it in this collection, I was also offered the chance to make significant edits. My intention is both to remain accountable to the original version of the text, and to show clearly where my thinking has shifted over time, just as all of our beliefs and practices in the area of transformative justice are, and must be, evolving conversations. 7. Transforming Family a story of accountability. Amita Swaden. I remember the black and white checkered linoleum tile staring up at me. The heft of the phone receiver in my hand. The dial tone droning in my ear. My mother's hand frozen around the handle of the knife drawer. My father's hand about to strike my face. I remember my clarity in that moment, I didn't want to kill him. I didn't even want to hurt him. Wanting that would make me just as bad as him. I just wanted him far away from me, my mom, and my sister, forever. I was sure I was going to die in that moment, but at least I would die certain that I was nothing like him. I was 14 years old. My father and my rapist were the same person. I felt so much self loathing, worried that somehow my blood was tainted, that I was inherently monstrous because my father was. Devil's spawn was a phrase that flashed through my head constantly, even though I knew I had never consented to my father's violence. School, television, and my insular Indian American community had taught me we are only as good as the families we come from. What did it mean that one of my makers was a monster who tortured me, and my mother and my sister and even the cat, brutally yet banally? I didn't die that day, and my father was eventually removed from our home. When my father hit me in the kitchen in front of my mother, we had already been engaged with the state for a year. I had disclosed sexual abuse to my mother when I was 13 afraid for my nine-year-old sister because my father had stopped raping me when I was 12. My mother called a therapist for me, and the therapist called the New Jersey Division of Youth and Family Services. Mandated reporting. It was a total nightmare. I had not yet found the words to tell my mother the full extent of violence I had survived. I was deeply riddled with shame, assuming that I was damaged because my father had raped me, sexually assaulted me, made me engage with his body sexually, and forced me to watch pornography hundreds of times from when I was four until I was 12. I needed so much tenderness, love, and support. I needed a team of adults who could keep me safe while honoring my agency and autonomy. Instead, I got the state, two white social workers in my living room, just a few days after I had barely disclosed to my mother that dad had abused me for many years, a white female police officer who was icy cold, two white prosecutors, one who threatened to prosecute my mother for being complicit in my abuse. I didn't feel safe enough to tell these white people anything. My father said he had molested me, one time. He got five years probation and no jail time. Deep down, I suspected my mother knew about my father abusing me. I would go on to spend years of my adulthood unraveling her excuses and integrating the truth of her knowing. But even so, I had more flashes of clarity as a teenager, I didn't want to harm my mother. I'd grown up seeing my mother brutalized by my father. I remembered our family vacation to the Florida Keys when I was 12. We all shared a hotel room with two beds. I remember waking up to my mother's soft pleas in the night, please, no, vashisht, not here, the girls are here. I remember shutting my eyes tight and inching closer to my peacefully sleeping sister. I was prepared when he raped my mother. I knew I wasn't his only victim. The day after my father hit me in the kitchen, I flew to Michigan to spend the summer in a high school debate camp. My sister got sent to suburban Cleveland, where we usually spent our summers with our nanny. While we were away, my father held my mother against the wall by her neck and threatened to kill her unless she could get him off probation. By then, my mother had been working in a doctor's office for 10 years. Although my father was an anchor in the local South Asian community, he didn't have any social ties to her mostly white co-workers. So, my mother packed a bag, put the cat in a carrier, gave the parakeets extra food, and stayed with her co-worker Sylvia for a week. Sylvia helped her file an order of protection, and the police escorted my father out of our house in handcuffs. My mother filed for divorce, but declined to press charges. The divorce was finalized in 1995, just before I left for college. Months later, we got word from my father's nephew's wife, a white woman who was considering leaving my abusive cousin, my father had married an indo guyanese woman he'd met through the Hindu temple he had joined when he moved 40 minutes south of our home. I remember wondering whether we had a moral obligation to warn this woman. I quickly decided, no. She was a grown woman in her mid-30s. My father stopped stalking my mother as soon as he started pursuing his new wife. He was someone else's problem now. Within a few years, We got word through my cousin's wife that my father had a son. Again, I felt the twinge should I warn my stepmother? But my father had moved all the assets from his carpet store into her name, and was fighting my mother in court over crumbs. My stepmother signed the meager child support checks. Every semester, I cried when my mother fretted that I might have to drop out of school because, even with my student loans and my work study job, she was having a hard time paying my tuition. My hatred for my stepmother, an accomplice to my father's financial abuse outweighed any concern I had. I rationalized any worry away by reminding myself my father had never, to my knowledge, sexually abused a boy. But in my senior year of college, we got another call from my cousin's wife, my stepmother was pregnant again. It was a girl. Fast forward to 2006. I was on the dance floor at Caddyshack, a lesbian club in Brooklyn. The DJ was another Punjabi woman. A little older than me. Years prior, we had pieced together that our fathers were friends when I was a kid, and when I disclosed my survivorship to her, she'd sheepishly told me her father had stayed friends with mine all these years. During her first break of the night, she made her way right over to me. I saw your dad, she said by way of greeting. At Christmas. He came over to my parents' house. With his kids, your sister's name? Selakshmi. She's six. When, at age 16, I cut my father off, his older brother made it clear to me that I was no longer a part of that family. Blood supremacy is the notion that blood ties are paramount, even at the expense of one's own well-being. It is the violence that allows patriarchy, ageism, and every other form of violence to persist generationally through incestuous rape, in my family and in so many others. I had done so much work to free myself from blood supremacy. So why did I care so much about this girl with whom I shared nothing but blood ties? The thought remained lodged in my subconscious. Meanwhile, my inner compartmentalization persisted. While I was out as a survivor to my closest friends and colleagues, I wasn't out to the general public. In grad school, my complex PTSD flared up worse than it had since college. To cope, I decided to finally tell my story publicly, while helping other survivors tell theirs too. I collaborated with an off-off-Broadway theater group, Ping Chong Plus Company, to create Secret Survivors, an ensemble piece featuring me and four other survivors of child sexual abuse. Through creating and performing Secret Survivors, I learned to hold my entire narrative at once. I confronted the members of my mother's family one by one, challenging their complicity in what had happened to me. And slowly... I reached the conclusion that I needed to move far away from my mother to truly be free from her emotional abuse and gaslighting. I prepared to move to Los Angeles because my then partner lived there. One thing kept nagging at me, though, my never contacted half sister. I knew by now she would be about 12 years old. I remembered how lonely and scared I'd felt at 12. I remembered how it felt to choke on my silence, to endure, to gaslight myself. I knew we actually shared more than blood ties we shared the same perpetrator. I found Salakshmi on Facebook, but I knew some parents, maybe including my father, monitored their children's social media accounts. I was scared of potential retaliation by my father, so I made a fake profile, pretending to be one of my own childhood best friends. And I sent Salakshmi a message, with a link to a clip of secret survivors. Hi Salakshmi. You don't know me, but my name is Amy and I am one of your sister Amita's best friends from childhood. I'm not sure if you know about Amita, but she's your oldest sister, and she knows you exist. She survived a lot of abuse from your father when she was a kid, and she hopes you're not being abused by him, too. But if you are, and if you want to talk to her, I'd be happy to introduce you. Here's a clip of a theater project she made, telling her story. Take care, Amy. It took Salakshmi two months to write Amy back. Wow. I had no idea. I'm not even sure where to start. I feel like my whole life is a lie. Yes, it happened to me too. Please put me in touch with Amita. I immediately switched Facebook profiles and sent Salakshmi a message from my actual account, assuring her I would support her. As soon as I sent the message, I knew it was time to alert my family. I was now less worried about retaliation from my father, but I was also about to move to Los Angeles in two weeks they'd be left behind in New Jersey, 40 minutes north of where my father lived. They had a right to know. I told my mother first. She was upset the cycle had repeated itself, but glad that Salakshmi wouldn't have to face the healing process alone. Unfortunately, my mother reneged her support as soon as I told my stepdad. He felt I'd endangered my real family by risking my father's retaliation to intervene in a stranger's life. I accused him of being a hypocrite, donating money to help orphans in India but not being brave enough to help a 12-year-old girl heal from the violence of the same man who had so deeply harmed his own wife and stepdaughters. That next week was one of the hardest. I spent my time packing boxes, grieving, and dissociating, sometimes all at once. My close friends, who were more like a network of platonic life partners, took public transportation from Brooklyn to suburban New Jersey to help me pack my things and ship them to Los Angeles. They kept me company on the phone into the late hours of the night. They reassured me I was loved, and commended me for reaching out to Salakshmi. They helped me believe that even though everything about my relationship with my family was changing, again, somehow it would all be okay in the end. Salakshmi wrote back to me a month after I moved to Los Angeles, and we began an infrequent correspondence through Facebook Messenger. Within six months of our first communication, She asked me to help her mother understand the severity of the violence she'd endured. As soon as Salakshmi had received Amy's message, she disclosed to her mother that our father had abused her. Her mother confronted our father immediately and forced him to move out of the house. But Salakshmi was worried that she would still have to see him, as her mother chose to stay married to him. We spoke on the phone about what she wanted. She was clear, even at the tender age of 12, that she didn't want police involvement. Her older brother had already been criminalized for marijuana possession and for supposedly making a teacher feel unsafe. The police had been terrible during that situation, and she was inclined not to trust them. She was also clear that she didn't want our father locked in a cage, she just didn't want to see or talk to him again. Despite my clear commitment to prison abolition and transformative justice, I would be lying if I said I didn't feel a tinge of regret at a missed opportunity for revenge. But the bigger part of me wanted to spare her from state violence, from the harrowing experience of being put on trial as a young survivor. I told Salakshmi about my experience with mandated reporting, and told her that I would help her the way she wanted to be helped. We set up another call for me to finally talk to my stepmother. Salakshmi stayed on the phone while she and I spoke. It was surreal. I remember telling my stepmother, My father raped me. He beat and raped my mother for years. I heard from my cousin's wife that he also beat you when you were pregnant. She denied this, and was incredulous about my recounting of my father's history. But I was relentless. Salakshmi says he didn't rape her, but he did sexually assault her for years. I don't believe in calling the police, but what my father did is very, very illegal. Either you will guarantee that Salakshmi will never have to see or talk to him again, or I will call the police. She promised. And eight years later that promise still holds. It took two more years of regular phone and Skype conversations until I was ready to meet Salakshmi in person. By then, she was 15. We spent hours talking on a bench in Central Park and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We have so many things in common, things that I don't share with my sister with whom I grew up, and that Salakshmi doesn't share with her brother. We are both poets, both activists, both really into school, both very extroverted people. We look like sisters too. We have the same eyes. Our father's eyes. Since that first meeting, Salakshmi and I have spent at least a week together once a year. When she was 13, she told me she wanted to be a survivor activist like me, but she knew she'd have to wait until she turned 18 because of mandated reporting. When she finished high school, I flew her to California as a graduation present. Together, we shared our story at the first Mirror Memoirs conference for key people of color who survived child sexual abuse, at the California Coalition Against Sexual Assault statewide conference, and in the Living Bridges archive curated by fellow survivor activist Mia Mingus. We wanted people to understand transformative justice can be practiced even when intervening in the case of a minor who has been sexually assaulted or raped by a parent with whom they still live. When I think about my journey toward transformative justice— I think about all the steps I took away from my past without knowing where they would lead. Shortly after I moved to Los Angeles, my father was scheduled to be a keynote speaker at a New Age event on healing and mysticism. If you've seen Kumare or Wild Wild Country, you have some idea of the guru my father aspires to be. The event happened to be in front of the Queen's Museum in New York City, where one of my best friends was the public events director. She told the event organizer she would pull their sound permit if they didn't pull my father from the lineup. Several of my friends attended the event to distribute flyers with my father's name on them, along with statistical information about the prevalence of child sexual abuse. I watched these events unfold from Los Angeles in awe, I'd never had any loved ones hold my father accountable. One of my friends, Boucher Raymond, even wrote a piece documenting the series of events for the Feminist Wire. Six years later, I was preparing to give a keynote in New Mexico to a statewide coalition of direct service providers working with survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. The day before my talk, I received a Facebook message from a stranger, a young Sikh American man who said my father had been visiting his Gurudwara, marketing himself as a spiritual healer. This young man's spidey sense had gone off when my father made plans to conduct a healing ritual for his younger sister. With a little Googling, he found Bhushra's article printed it out, and used it to confront my father in front of his father and sister. Do you know this woman? Is she your daughter? Did you do the things she says you did? He told me that my father admitted to being my father, but denied his violence. I believe her, though, this young man replied. He convinced his parents to cancel the ritual. Then he printed out copies of the article and distributed them throughout the temple. Your father will never be welcome in our Gurdwara again. Thank you for your work. Keep doing what you are doing, he wrote. Seeds bloom in the most unexpected ways. That's what transformative justice has taught me. If I'd cooperated with those prosecutors all those years ago, my father would have been incarcerated, and Salakshmi would never have been born. Being able to heal with her, to laugh with her, to resist with her has been such an unexpected gift, when I would not have known to dream of when I was thirteen. Every time we are together, the veils of time part. For her, I can be the adult I needed when I was younger. By reaching for her, I've simultaneously interrupted my father's cycle of harm and created an everlasting bond of healing, something no judge or jail could ever provide. Part 2, We Got This. Toolkits and Roadmaps. 8. Philly Stands Up. A Portrait of Praxis, An Anatomy of Accountability. Esteban Lance Kelly and Jenna Peters-Golden with Key Alexander, Bench Ansfield, Beth Bloom, and Dexter Rose of Philly Stands Up. Collective. The alchemy of our accountability work is a serendipitous mixture, part art, part science. To be sure, the skill and complexity involved in working on accountability processes is difficult to finesse. Nevertheless, we affirm that average people, regular folks in communities all across North America, can develop and exercise their own processes for making justice in sexual assault situations possible for their communities. In doing so, our communities can meet more success, by any measure, than the state ever has in addressing the chaos of issues stirred up by incidents of sexualized violence. What we now know, we learned through trial and quite a bit of error. Some of the mistakes and missteps we've made throughout the years enabled, and in some cases exacerbated, pain toward survivors and communities. We take responsibility for these mistakes. Very few of us in the history of Philly Stands Up, PSU, came to the group with any prior formal experience working on sexual assault issues, let alone working with people who have caused harm. We are average people, figuring out how to do thorny work, and our achievements stem from being committed to our values and purpose. We believe that people who have caused harm can change and that we all can play a crucial role in catalyzing that shift. In recognition of our peers and mentors in the past and present who have figured out and passed along lessons such as these, specifically indigenous, black, and brown communities with women at the front, it is with a great sense of humility that we share some of the logistical guts of what we've devised for our process of working on sexual assault situations. We are grateful to all the other organizers, thinkers, neighbors, and comrades whose wisdom and experience has been in collaboration with ours. We see the input of energy and emotional attention to these processes as the core ingredients for supporting meaningful change. Our dedication to working with people who have perpetrated assault is rooted in our solidarity with survivors of harm, and our commitment to recognizing the humanity within us all. It demands naming that most of the people with whom we work have also survived sexual or physical violence in their lifetimes. When we say that we work to hold people who have perpetrated sexual assault accountable 10 for the harm they have done, this means that we strive for them to do the following. Recognize the harm they have done, even if it wasn't intentional. Acknowledge that harm's impact on individuals and the community. Make appropriate restitution to the individual and community. Develop solid skills for transforming attitudes and behavior to prevent further harm and make contributions toward liberation. We conceptualize roughly five phases to an accountability process, the beginning, designing the structure, life process, tools we use, and closing a process. Phase 1. The Beginning. People find us in many ways, we are known through our educational workshops, our contributions to zines, and also through word of mouth, the internet, and personal connections with individual members in PSU. Sometimes a person who has caused harm gets in touch with us and says something like, I really messed up, and the person I hurt told me I need to work with you guys. Sometimes they say, a few years ago I was abusive. I sexually assaulted someone and I wasn't really ready to deal with it until now. In our workshops, people are often surprised to hear about these situations in which people contact us of their own volition, sometimes years after committing harm. The reality is that, with time, we grow. With growth, with opportunity, many of us summon the courage to reflect on past behavior and see problems that we need to engage with. Another possibility is that someone might say, I was sexually assaulted by so-and-so, and I want to hold them accountable. They would then task us with tracking down so and so and attempting to initiate an accountability process. Beyond these cases, there are instances when someone who is neither the survivor nor the person who caused harm gets in touch with us on behalf of either party. In any event, once we have touched base with the person who has caused harm, we sketch out the situation and discuss it as a group. We first find out if two collective members are able to take on this situation, we learned early on to always work in pairs. If so, We discuss what we know about the situation, and we honestly assess if we are equipped to handle it. There is always the possibility that we can't handle pieces of the situation. Sometimes we are not qualified for one reason or another and by trying to work on it we might cause more harm than good. Sometimes PSU members decline to engage a situation because some of its aspects feel emotionally triggering. After we have assessed the situation, we schedule a meet-up with the person who has caused harm. We typically meet in places that are public but run a low risk of encounters with people we know. Examples include parks, train stations, hotel lobbies, food courts, or outdoor cafes. Phase 2. Designing the Process Next, we design a process based on what the situation warrants. Often, we have a document listing demands. Demands are actions the survivor needs from the community or the person who caused harm in order to be safe and to heal. Below is a sample list of common demands. Pay for my STI testing slash abortion slash doctor's appointment. Deal with your drug slash alcohol problem. If you see me out somewhere, it's your responsibility to leave the premises. Don't talk to me or contact me. For now, don't go to the meetings of such and such organization in which both the survivor and person who has caused harm are members. Disclose to all the people you are sleeping with or dating that you sexually assaulted someone and are in an accountability process. Write me a sincere letter of apology. Demands are the central document in our accountability process. In situations where we have a list of demands, they fundamentally drive the design for our process. Our goals as facilitators of the process are to meet the demands laid out by the survivor, and in some cases the community at large, both in letter and in spirit. In designing a particular process, we bear several principles in mind. First, we try to involve the person we are working with in the design of the process. If they can help brainstorm our objectives, timeline, and tactics, then they feel more invested in everything to come. As collaborators in a process rather than participants in an externally imposed program, they might be more reluctant to bail on commitments. Second, in order to engage the person who caused harm, we figure out methods that specifically work for them. If they are a visually oriented person, we make drawings or word maps to describe what we are talking about in a meeting. If they hate to read, we might record a reading for them. If they have trouble sitting still or focusing for a long time, we might plan to talk while walking around the block. In our engagement efforts, we have even arranged meetings consisting of street skating and board games. Be accommodating and creative. The goal is to enlist this person in meaningful and sustained accountability and change, think like an educator, an organizer, and an artist. We also use the meetings as an opportunity to model the behavior we are trying to encourage in the person with whom we are working. We demonstrate preferred behavior by, for example, articulating and maintaining explicit social and physical boundaries, striving for clear communication, practicing empathy, showing respect, which is perceptibly appreciated among people who have been ostracized in the aftermath of sexual assault, and exemplifying utter honesty. If the person we are working with misses a meeting or arrives late, we will discuss the need for better communication and help them understand how their actions were inconsiderate. Together, we lay down ground rules for how we want to communicate with one another, which gives us concrete agreements for holding folks accountable. We can then use their progress in adhering to agreements and creating positive momentum and endorsing their capacity to grow and change. Phase 3 Life Structure When needed, we emphasize fostering balance and creating structure in the person's life. If they are unstable, then it becomes difficult for them to be present in the work we are doing together. In such situations, it is crucial for us to take account of the broader challenges in their lives. The more grounded they are, the better their chances of following through on their accountability process. Toward that end, we create space for them to have a personal check in at the beginning of each meeting. This is a moment for them to share anything they wish about their daily lives, emotional state, or logistical hurdles. The check in allows us to hear, for example, about their progress in finding a therapist or stable housing, or about job interviews or family visits. At times, we have actively passed along job prospects accompanied people in looking for viable housing, and given people rides to therapy appointments. This humbling and more fundamentally human work has helped us to see what it truly means to acknowledge that we are all in community together, that a politics of trust depends on everyday support and interdependence, and that nobody rests outside of these principles in a just society. Phase 4. Tools We Use Each process is unique. Most meetings consist primarily of talking, We talk about stories, the instances of assault that took place, relationship patterns, and countless connected issues. We employ several general tools as guides in the meeting space. Storytelling, we ask to hear stories, encourage discussion about dynamics or emerging themes, and use these didactically, sometimes revisiting their stories. Storytelling offers opportunities for us to pause and imagine the same story from the survivor's point of view. By deconstructing the story in this way, We can often push for new levels of understanding, building empathy and rewriting narratives that prevent people from taking full responsibility for their actions. Writing, giving homework is a good way to maintain continuity between meetings. Sometimes people write down recollections of an instance of abuse, record what certain words mean to them, keep a log of times they felt frustration or anger, those are common emotions we work with, or maintain a journal about how the accountability process is going for them. Role playing. Taking a cue from Augusto Bowles Theater of the Oppressed, we sometimes act out scenarios that have occurred or that could occur. Role-playing is great for building skills of perception and empathy, and is a safe way for people to try out new behaviors and understand past ones. Reading slash listening slash watching, most situations that we come across call for further education. There are countless helpful texts, films, lectures, podcasts, and so on that shed light on patriarchy. Consent, substance abuse, internalized oppression, and the dynamics of power, privilege, and oppression. Here, our role is to tailor any resources to the person we are working with. Phase 5 Closing a process. Improving ourselves is lifelong work for everyone, and certainly for folks who have a history of perpetrating violence. Most of our accountability processes last between nine months and two years, and they could potentially continue ad infinitum. In retrospect, the processes that last longer than a year have often felt too long. This begs the question, when is it time to wrap up a situation? Much like therapy, there is no objective answer to this, but here are some indicators for when it might be appropriate to wind things down. One obvious signal that it's time to close out a process is when both the letter and the spirit of the demands have been met. If a demand is write me a letter of apology, It won't do for the person who has caused harm to draft an apology within the first few months of their process when there is anger, resentment, and disbelief permeating the letter. Although hastily dashing off an apology may technically satisfy a demand, communicating sincere contrition is the true spirit of the demand. This can only be achieved once hard work and requisite time have gone into understanding one's role in the assault, and once the person has gained a sense of empathy for how the assault affected the survivors and the community. If a demand calls for sobriety or a reduction in the use of illicit substances, then fulfilling the true spirit of the demand would require both cutting back substance use and moving toward a true understanding of how the survivor, or community, came to this demand. We would look for the person who caused harm to recognize whether drinking or using creates conditions for impaired judgment and abusive behavior. Making that connection and changing their relationship to that substance would therefore be true fulfillment of the demand. Another indicator that it's time to transition out of a formal process is that the person who has caused harm has demonstrated their capacity to navigate through gray zones. Here, it is important to feel confident that they have practiced this shift in their everyday life and that this change is profound and lasting. Often we would hesitate to wind down an accountability process unless we are sure that whomever we are working with has developed responsible and sustainable systems of support in their life. We look for clues that they have not just one or two, but plenty of decent friends with whom they can speak honestly. This can include housemates or family members they trust for support when challenges come up, particularly with issues related to this work. We also work to ensure that they are familiar with the resources available to them around the city. Usually, ending a process looks more like phasing it out. Over time we go from meeting each week, to twice a month, to once a month, until finally we are only meeting to check in periodically. After an accountability process, the people with whom we have worked know that we are here for them whenever they need us. 10. Our working definition is based on Generation 5's articulation of accountability in their document, Toward Transformative Justice, A Liberatory Approach to Child Sexual Abuse and Other Forms of Intimate and Community Violence, San Francisco, Generation 5, 2007. 9. Goal-Setting Tool Dealing with Strong Negative Feelings and Fantasy During Goal-Setting Creative Interventions. It is common for people to have strong negative feelings, fantasies, or unrealistic expectations linked to goals about situations of harm. At some point during the goal setting phase, it is good to let a full range of feelings be expressed no matter how far fetched they may seem to you. Considering the entire range of goals generated in response to a situation of harm may help people express strong negative feelings and fantasies, as well as other goals that may be more realistic. For example, the survivor may express goals such as the following. I wish the person doing harm were dead or experienced the same harm they did to me. I wish the person doing harm could be publicly humiliated or hurt so that they would know they could never do this again. I wish this had never happened to me. I wish that I would feel the same as I felt before this ever happened. Allies may express ideas such as the following. I wish the survivor would have walked away. I wish the survivor would cut off all contact with the person doing harm. I wish the survivor would just move on. I wish someone else would deal with this. The person who did harm may want things like these. I wish everyone would just forgive me and forget about this. I wish everyone would understand that I was under a lot of pressure and cut me some slack. I wish everyone would know that the survivor deserved it. Anybody would have done the same thing if they were in my shoes. I wish this had never happened. While extreme responses and fantasies may be normal, we ask you to think about the following in assessing whether or not you want to pursue a goal. Values. Does this goal fit your values? Risk assessment. Will pursuing this goal lead to more harm for yourself or others, or will it lead to retaliation? Realistic or achievable. Is it actually possible to achieve this goal? Goal setting guided questions and chart. The following section includes some basic questions you can think through in moving toward goals. They can be asked individually or as a group. If this process is survivor-driven, that is, if the process will prioritize the goals of the survivor, then this may be focused around the survivor's or victim's needs and desires. Others can think about these questions for themselves as individuals and also focus on the needs of the survivor in the community. Guided Questions What do I want for myself? What do I want for the survivor or victim, if I am not the survivor or victim? What do I want for other important people, children, other family members, friends, organizations, and so on? What do I want for the person doing harm, if I am not the person doing harm? What do I want for the larger community? It may be useful to name who we mean by the community. What do I not want? You can ask this question using the same categories above. What is important to me? This can include values, ways things will happen, or people. What are the most important wants, or goals? Is there anything that is an absolute must have or must do? Is there anything that is an absolute must not? Have I considered things such as safety, financial needs, connection to people or relationship, and other things that are important to me? Do these goals fit with my values? Is there anything I would add or leave out after thinking about this? Are some goals more achievable than others? Which are most achievable? Is there anything I would add or leave out after thinking about this? Will pursuing any of these goals lead to more harm to myself, the survivor or victim, the person doing harm, or others, or will it lead to retaliation? Is there anything I would add or leave out after thinking about this? What goals might be fantasies? Is there anything I would add or leave out after thinking about this? What would I consider a success? What goals would I consider good enough? Can I divide these goals into long-term and short-term goals? If doing so makes sense, you can do that. After answering the guided questions, see if you can write your goals in the following chart. The chart will be easier to refer to and share with others. 10. Excerpts from Ending Child Sexual Abuse: a Transformative Justice Handbook. Stacy K. Haynes, Raquel Lavina, Chris Limbertos, R.J. McCani and Nathan Shara. We are writing this in the autumn of 2018, after a summer of seeing families separated at the border, another policy in a long history of traumatizing children, adults, and communities. The U.S. Supreme Court nomination hearings of Brett Kavanaugh showed us, yet again, the deep patriarchy and white supremacy that lives at the core of this nation, and reminded us of Anita Hill's bravery. #MeToo Me Too went viral a year ago, and since then, Hundreds of thousands of people have told their stories of sexual violence. Sexual assault is also being grappled with within progressive social movements. Many of us have been engaged with processes to support healing for survivors, hold offenders accountable, and deepen feminisms within movement organizations, all while attempting to stay aligned with our social justice values. Many times, in the throes of this era, we have wished that transformative justice, as a politic and a practice— existed at a larger and more accessible scale. There are many survivors in need of trauma healing, many allies in need of a clear, politically grounded, and visionary strategy, and many movement organizations in need of tested and usable transformative justice, TJ, approaches that address personal, collective, and systemic change. When we look at transformative justice, we see that three things are needed. Social analysis and organizing, we need to understand the intersectional, systemic causes and scale of sexual violence. To change it, we need organizing, movement building, and systems change guided by a liberatory vision. Trauma healing and transformation, we need knowledge and practice in the predictable impacts of trauma, and the ways to heal both individually and collectively. We need to know how to use this understanding in our organizing, resilience building, and leadership development. We need many spaces where folks can heal. Lastly, We need folks who are skilled in working with people who offend and moving them toward accountability and transformation. People, we need ongoing TJ processes and formations that are made up of folks who have these skills. These formations need to be surrounded by others, who have their backs and can add to the resources and skills. This is no small practice, and we need thousands of us. This may sound overwhelming, but it is such an amazing call. Do we have the skills and scale we need? Not yet. Is there the collective will and commitment? Yes, we see it every day. Transformative justice is an ongoing opportunity to align our politics and practice, our healing and organizing, and is a means to stay true to the long road toward love and justice. Following our segments from Generation 5's Ending Child Sexual Abuse, a transformative justice handbook. These are highlights from the sections on safety, healing, and agency and accountability and transformation of those who abuse. May this add to the collective transformative justice practice. Safety, healing, and agency. The people most directly impacted are at the heart of transformative justice. In child sexual abuse, this means the children currently experiencing sexual abuse, children and young people who were sexually abused in the past, and adults who experienced sexual abuse during childhood or adolescence. Though the resources, questions, and skills needed to ensure safety, healing, and agency for any one survivor vary depending on the context and conditions surrounding their experiences. A commitment to survivor safety, healing, and agency is central to both the vision and the practice of transformative justice. Intervening in child sexual abuse. Children cannot and should never be expected to prevent abuse they experience. The responsibility for abuse lies with the person or people doing the harm, and with the adults in a child's life who can stop it. Children know that something wrong is happening but may not know what words to use, and also may be frightened that no one will believe them or that they will be punished if they tell. Eleven. Adults in a child's life can get overwhelmed by feelings of horror and rage when learning that a child we care about may be experiencing sexual abuse. It's crucial to seek support and take action to protect the child or children in the situation. An adult's initial response can make a huge difference in a child feeling safer immediately. If you believe a child is being sexually abused or a child has just disclosed to you that they are being sexually abused. Prioritize the child's safety and well-being. While you will have intense feelings of your own, the child's well-being has to be the center of any interaction. Staying calm and present will support their safety and healing in both the short and long term. Let them know that they did the right thing in sharing with you. Communicate to the child that the abuse was not their fault. It is very common for survivors to assume that the abuse happened because of something they did or failed to do, such as I wasn't supposed to talk to strangers and I did, or I liked them, and they were nice to me. It is very important that the child consistently hears that the abuse was not their fault. Assure the child that you will do whatever you can to prevent the abuse from happening again. It is vital for adults to demonstrate to the child that they deserve protection, including by limiting contact with the person who has been abusive. Twelve. Be careful though, not to make absolute promises that the abuse will stop, caution advocates from Stop It Now, an organization working to prevent child sexual abuse, CSA, broken promises are harmful to any child, especially one who is already feeling betrayed. But we can strive to eliminate all opportunities for the abuse to occur again such as preventing the person doing the harm from being alone with the child or with other children in the family or community. Seek additional support, resources, and help. Intervening in child sexual abuse is not a single event, but requires an ongoing commitment to keep showing up over time to support healing, accountability, and transformation. Start identifying potential allies, resources, and supports early. Assess the risks and present danger in the situation as well as your ability to respond to that danger, along with the ability of other allies in the situation. thirteen Again, engage support where you don't have it. Sometimes those closest to the abuse are not the most resource to help. Positively affirm the child's sharing and be responsive to the child's pace. A child may share a lot at once, and then not want to talk about the abuse the next time you speak with them. Allowing the child's pace to dictate the process is another way of affirming and restoring the child's sense of choice and self determination. Support the child's resilience. We all have inherent resilience. This is not numbing or dissociating or getting through. Resilience can be found in experiences that have us feel more alive, more hopeful, and more connected, and that have us feel we are more than the violence we experienced. Create opportunities for the child to do things that they like and that build their resilience, like playing making music and art, and engaging in spiritual practice. Because child sexual abuse occurs in secrecy and isolates people from each other, we see honest and respectful connection as a core element of healing. This means, among other things, that people who have been sexually abused need access to spaces where they are supported and allowed to share what has been kept secret, and where they can experience belonging, compassion, and dignity. Over and over, People who have been sexually abused report that what they need is to tell their own stories about their own experiences, within a context of trust and safety. Experience validation that the harm they experienced was and is real. Observe that the person who sexually abused them feels remorse and is accountable for their actions. Receive support that counteracts isolation and self-blame. Have choice and input into the resolution of the harm they experienced be accepted and encouraged, not shamed and blamed, for coming forward by their families, peers, and communities. Recovery from trauma requires creating and telling another story about the experience of violence and the nature of the participants, a story powerful enough to restore a sense of our own humanity to the abused. Aurora Levin's Morales, Medicine Stories 14. Over the last decade, advocates, activists, and organizers have risen to the challenge of using a transformative justice model rather than models dictated by the criminal justice system we have learned that to center the needs of survivors and change the conditions that support abuse there are skills practices tools resources and messages we can provide including the following colon 15 access to a safe compassionate listener with whom it feels possible to acknowledge that the abuse happened or to begin exploring the possibility that maybe it did Education about child sexual abuse. Meaningful political education on the realities of child sexual abuse, its prevalence, and the relationship between CSA and broader systems of oppression, white supremacy, patriarchy, class oppression, religious oppression, ableism, adultism, homophobia, xenophobia, and so forth, are all critically important in supporting survivors to heal shame and locate accountability where it belongs. Opportunities to regenerate a sense of safety, in part through making choices and exercising self-determination. This includes relearning boundaries, or learning them for the first time. Opportunities to find or rebuild more authentic connection and relationships, which are based on what the person healing cares about and wants in relationship. Opportunities to practice mutual intimacy and sexuality with resources and supports to navigate triggers or memories that may arise within the context of a sexual relationship or intimacy. Support in identifying and cultivating resilience. Support and guidance to heal shame and cultivate self-forgiveness. For many survivors, one of the most difficult aspects of healing is the process of coming to believe that it was not and is not our fault that someone sexually abused us. Support and guidance to learn centered accountability. Nothing about the experience of being sexually abused was your fault. And, out of our survival strategies and trauma reactions, we may have caused harm to other people in our lives. Actions that shift conditions within a family, community, and society. Getting involved in social and climate justice can be healing and can change the social and economic conditions that perpetuate violence in many forms. For many of us, Taking action to end child sexual abuse or other forms of violence and injustice is a powerful expression of our collective survival, our resilience, and our right to be whole and to thrive. Accountability and transformation of those who abuse. Our stories matter. The stories we tell, and the stories we don't tell. What we keep hidden inside of ourselves can shape our experience of the world, and managing these aspects of our history can limit our energy as well as our imagination about what is possible for our future. Choosing to put attention on the things that scare us, things we may feel ashamed of or which we don't understand, can be an act of both courage and resilience. Accountability is central to any practice of justice. Transformative justice interventions seek concrete accountability from individuals who act abusively and also engage community members in creating conditions that invite and demand real accountability and change. The vast majority of people who sexually abuse children deny their behavior. Given current punitive interventions, there is very little incentive for any of us to acknowledge sexually abusive behavior to others. It is vital that we create spaces and encouragement for people who have sexually abused children, or who feel they might sexually abuse children in the future, to be able to share and come forward. TJ asks us to transform the dominant paradigm of accountability that we have inherited. Most of us have been deeply shaped by the false notion that in order for people to behave better they need to feel worse and be punished. In practice, we see that humans are, in fact, far more likely to change in desirable ways when they are more resourced, not less. For example, at this time, there is no existing support within the United States for treating people with pedophilic urges. Individuals who self-identify as having these desires have had to self-organize their own anonymous online support groups for non-offending pedophiles. In contrast, Prevention Project Dunkelfeld developed a program in 2005 in Berlin, Germany, that offered treatment and support to anyone who stepped forward to seek help with pedophilic urges. By March 2018, 9,515 people sought help from all over Germany, 2,894 people traveled to one of the sites for diagnosis and advice, 1,554 were offered a place in a therapeutic program, 925 participants have started the therapy, and 360 have successfully completed it. More than half reported having previously attempted to find therapy without success. Since 2011, the project has grown into a nationwide network called Don't Offend with 12 centers that provide free weekly group therapy. The project's slogan is You are not guilty because of your sexual desire, but you are responsible for your sexual behavior. 16. Another inspiring model for supporting accountability and transformation is Circles of Support and Accountability, Co.SA. Which was started in Canada by Mennonite pastor Harry Nye, whose friend had been convicted for repeated sexual offenses. Alongside other parishioners, NI developed a support group model within which four to six trained volunteers from the community form what they call an inner circle around the person who caused harm. This circle meets regularly to facilitate getting the practical needs of the core member, the person who caused harm, met, such as finding housing and other services, to provide emotional support, and to challenge behaviors that may be associated with a risk of re-offending. COSUS currently exist in several countries, as well as six U.S. states.17 A TJ approach attempts to make proactive accountability safe and compelling. Our vision challenges us to create a collective culture of growth and dynamic support. One that acknowledges and supports each individual's inherent dignity and worthiness of connection, while simultaneously demanding rigorous self accountability and mutual accountability. We aim for forms of accountability that enable transformation transformation of survivor experience, of sexually abusive behavior, of bystander engagement. And of the broader conditions that allow child sexual abuse to continue. We see that abuse happens when one person believes, consciously or unconsciously, that their needs, wants, and preferences take precedence over others. People engaging in abusive behaviors are often numb to, or seemingly unable to feel, the impacts of their behaviors on others. A process of accountability and transformation requires that the person who has been harmful stops doing the harm. Feels empathy and remorse for the pain and impact of their actions. Takes measures, like restitution or reparations, to address the harm caused. Takes measures to prevent future harm. Works to understand the root causes of their harmful behavior. Engages in the ongoing work of accountability, healing, and integration takes action and organizes to support others to heal or to be part of changing community and social conditions that allow for CSA and other forms of violence. While the impulse to villainize or banish may be understandable, we must engage, name the harm, and call upon this person's dignity in order to hold standards that support safety, connection, and dignity for everyone involved, and above all for those most directly impacted by the harm. For many people, The idea of giving attention to the healing needs of a person who has been sexually abusive is difficult to tolerate, particularly when there are limited resources available for survivors. It is important to center the needs of those most directly impacted by the harm in a situation. We also hold that recognizing and attending to the humanity of those who harm is a central aspect of transforming our families, communities, and society. Seeing and dignifying the healing needs of people who abuse also runs counter to the idea that some people out there are monsters who are expendable or need to be weeded out. By standing for everyone's need for healing, we challenge the dehumanizing logic that is central to systems of oppression, domination, and abuse. By standing for everyone's need for healing, we maintain our commitment to a vision of true liberation.